0: Continuing with Bodhidharma's two entrances, the more I read this, the more limited I think this text is, but we'll, we'll unfold it in a little different way. To enter by practice refers to, all, to four all-inclusive practices. Suffering, injustice, adapting to conditions, seeking nothing, and practicing the Dharma. First, suffering injustice. When those who search for the path encounter adversity, they should think to themselves, in countless ages gone by, I've turned from the essential to the trivial and wandered through all manner of existence, often angry without cause and guilty of numberless transactions transgressions. Now though I do no wrong, I'm punished by my past. Neither gods nor men can foresee when an evil deed will bear its fruit. I accept it with an open heart and without Complaint of Injustice. So this is, uh, in many ways, a wonderful teaching of patient endurance. And a certain understanding of the law of cause and effect, karma. But there is something much more essential that needs to be investigated. And that is, who or what is suffering? who or what is encountering adversity. Hakuin, in the Song of the Zazen, which we often chant, has the line, the cause of our sorrow is ego delusion. From dark path to dark path, we've wandered in darkness. Ego delusion means we're mistaken, we're deluded about this central um, issue of who we are. So, the whole of Buddhism and all of the teachings are to help us see things as they are, to help us see self and other as they are, and not as we think they are. So, we often look out at the earth and it looks flat, but that's not the way it is. We look at the sun And the sun appears to be rising up in the east. But that's not the way it is. We look at the stars, and the stars appear to rotate. But that's not the way it is. So we often have assumptions about the earth is flat, or the earth is the center of the universe, or the stars spin, which are just not accurate. Sometimes they're as good a guesses we can make. So, the virtue or the intention of Dharma is to free us from pointless, isolated life full of meaningless suffering. And it is important to remember that the teachings, all the Dharma teachings, rest on the three pure precepts. And the three pure precepts to avoid evil, to avoid unskillful actions, to avoid harming others, to do good, to be skillful in in all things, and then to be of benefit and help others. All the Dharma teachings are directed at that. And then the ten grave precepts, the number one, the, the number whatever, is to be generous. So all the Dharma teachings are about being skillful, helping others, being generous. Um, and even if the teachings somehow don't seem to be in alignment with that, it's worth us investigating. Is that true? Is that true? Now, as we explore these topics, the the topic we're going to look at today, um, you might also ask, well, if something is true for me, is it true for others too? And consider the implications of that. So, one of the teachings at the heart of the Zen school, at the heart of all of Buddhism, is Anicca no self, no other, emptiness of self. And all the koans and basic Dharma teachings point to this truth, or else point to how this truth of no self functions with compassion. So let's explore that uh, some today, and to do our best to look fearlessly and directly at it. Now, above all, it requires curiosity to do this, and looking closely at, our, at what is instead of our assumptions. Now here is the, 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 the kind of mindfulness, the kind of attention that is needed, as an example. Right now, if you close your eyes and you ask yourself, what do you see? Well, some people say, I don't see anything. That's not true. It's just not true. And so, we say, look closer. Look more closely. And then they might say, well, I see darkness. I see black. Well, look closer. Look closer. And then if they look more closely, they might say, well, I see the the, the mottled light coming through my eyelids, the kind of the red color. Look closer. Look closer. And if they look more closely, they might actually see the, the pixelated snow of... It's kind of... Uh, at the that's below that. Many people talk about it being like static, it was on the old televisions, or very small, minute, pixelated points. And we say look closer, and we see black and white, little pixelated black and white, blinking on and off, and going nowhere, changing. And we say look closer, and there are things you can see as we look more and more closely, things open up with the intensity and the directness of our gaze. And suffering is just to live with our assumptions without looking directly at them. So now let's go back to what we were doing this morning and have that same kind of attitude of looking carefully. So I'd ask, and I suggest you do right now, become aware of the sense of I am sitting here. I am. I am breathing. And I hope that if anyone talks you, tries to talk you out of that, they would not succeed. Or else they would confuse you so much that you didn't know which end was up we all have the direct experience of sitting right here of being breathed, of breathing. So, be aware, turn your attention to that sense of I am. And sometimes there are salient features in the I am that remind you of Now, if you have some sense of the I am, that kind of almost primordial essence of being human, let's examine it, because without Examining it, we can't really see what this text is about, nor do we encounter liberation. So the first examination is simply to scan through the body and see if the I am is located in a particular place. Just to scan through and say, is this sense of I am in my nose, in my ears, in my throat, in my clavicles, in my thorax, in my belly, in my pelvis, in my. Is that sense of I am? Does it have a location? As we scan through. So do it right now. Scan through the body and see, I am that sense of isness. Just take note of it. Now, let's look at this a little more carefully. Again, it is predicated on acknowledging the sense of I am. I am sitting here. And so now let's carefully look at. this I am, and if you lost a finger, would your sense of I am, that core sense of I am, be affected? Of course, if you lost a finger, your functioning would be affected and it would change your psychology and so on and so forth. But that's, that's not what we're looking at, we're looking at the, the core sense of beingness. And then you think, well, okay, what if I lost my ears? Would that core sense of beingness be diminished? An arm, two arms, or quadriplegic, if I were aphasic, if I couldn't speak, would, as we dissect the body into its various parts, does that sense of I am diminish? Or is it still present? We can see that in other people. We see that people who are quadriplegic have a full inner life, even though they are not walking around. The spark of I am is there, but confirm it. Now, if we take just the spark of I am, that's the spark of the tingling aliveness at the root, and we say, "Okay, we're now going to add an arm to it. Is that what makes us, you know, the sense of I am with an arm floating in space? What if we had an arm and a leg? Is the sense of I am with an arm and a leg floating in space, is that what gives rise to this personality, this being? How about two arms and two legs floating in space? Have we come into this personality, this thing we regard ourselves as, has that come into being yet? two arms, two legs, floating in space, a thorax floating in space, Your chest floating in space, a neck, a belly, a pelvis, ears. At what point do these little bits that keep coming on, at what point do they become us? Or do they? Is that sense of I am bigger because we happen to have four arms? Or is it smaller because we only have one leg? Now imagine you've got to have, again, that sense of I am. And you imagine, instead of two arms, you had an elephant's trunk. Okay, Two legs, two elephant's trunks, and the usual complement of human attributes. Is that inner sense, that inner spark, that inner sense of I am, affected by the trunks? Imagine that you are a different gender. Is the sense of, I am, does that change gender in some way? Again, we're not talking about our self-identity. We're not talking about our sense of I, me, and my. We're talking about this very core, core awareness of I. It's an investigation. Just investigate the core awareness of I AM. And is it dependent upon which extremities we have, or which gender we have? The I AM, which is clearly sitting in this room, Does it change if we fantasize about being someplace else? Just notice. Now, the next investigation is if we point at our hand, this hand has a name, hand. Or we can point at our arm, arm. Or we can point at our shoulder, shoulder. We can point at our back, back. Sort of, we can point at our back. We can point at our teeth, teeth. And we can go through the body, and every part of the body has names much more minutely than any of us are aware of anymore. But when we point at the one who carries your name, what are you pointing at? The name hand goes to hand, the name shoulder goes to shoulder, the name pelvis goes to pelvis, the name toe goes to toe. What does your name refer to? These, this particular examination has been done in the, the, you know, dharmic circles for millennia. The questions of King Melinda, he asked the, the sage Nagasena. The sage, the sage Nagasena asked King Melinda, how did you get here? And King Melinda says, I came by a cart. And Nagasena says, well, let's take off the wheels. Let's take off the, the axle. Let's take the bed of the cart off. Let's take the sides. Let's take the tongue. At what point is there a cart? what point is there no cart? Same is true with us. We say, well, let's take it all apart. Let's do an exploded diagram of a car. So we see all the different parts and they're all laid out. Is there a car there? So we can do the same thing with us. We can just take our parts and say, oh, there's all these parts. Well, are the parts who I am? Again, if we're pointing at the one who carries our name, what are we pointing at? Investigate. Here's another investigation. Everyone has the sense of I am. I am sitting here. I have a body. And turn your attention to that sense, that sensation, that awareness of I am. And look at it directly. What is that sensation of I am? What happens when we try to Look at it directly and find it. If there is one fundamental truth that we all operate on is I am. And <clears throat> Now we're just saying, well, look at the I am. Is it constant? Does it flicker in and out? Does our mind go this way and that way and come back to it? Can we find it? Examine. I am. These are my clothes. To whom do they belong? Who is the possessor? Someone tries, mentioned earlier, to take them away. We would hold on. We would say, these are my clothes. my arm my ears my hair what what is the i am that is holding on what is the i am turn the attention right to there don't pretend there's nothing there it's not it's not concurrent with reality or it's not Aligned with reality, so we can see the sense of "I am" flickers. We're aware of it. We're not aware of it. becomes more pre- more present. Present disappears. becomes more present if someone tries to take our shoes. It disappears when we are comfortable. becomes more present when Someone might cough on us and give us COVID. Disappears. We're feeling healthy and comfortable. Look at your essence now. Look at this sense of I am. And would it change? Would it be different if you had a different name? If your name were Jehoshaphat? Would the sense of I am be different? This is the label, the label Felicity or Thomas or, you know, Sin Quanon or whatever. Does the label change the sense of I am? Always, when someone calls our name, we tend to orient. What is it that orients? We tend to not orient if someone calls some other name. But at the core is the name who we are. So we have uh, an altar here, and we call this figure uh, a Buddha, Shakyamuni Buddha. But if we called it a tulip, or we called it a, a uh, <clears throat> incinerator, would its nature be changed? The name is not the essence. Classic things, you know, a rose, the name Rose is is a a scriptor of particular form. Again, since this I am, I am sitting here. Again. Do not deny the obvious. I am sitting here. I am clothed. I am thinking. But that very vivid feeling is a little ephemeral. Hard to pin down. Hard to find. Hard to say, right there. Now imagine someone came to take away your computer, take away your climbing gear, to take away your car, to take away your house. Imagine someone came to take something precious from you. And it's gone. Nothing you can do about it. Does the sense of I am is it diminished? Is it smaller because we have less stuff? And does it get bigger because we have more stuff? Is it smaller because something we cherish is gone and is it bigger when we have more of the things that we cherish around us? Does that sense of I am is it dependent upon our car? our computer. Now, again, come back to the sense of I Am, Now, what if you had a different narrative about your history? What if your history was not whatever you tend to tell people? What if you had a different narrative, that you grew up in a different culture, you grew up with a different body, you grew up with different experiences? Of course, that would shape your presentation in the world. But this sense of I am This sense, this inner sense of, yes, I am me, yes, right at the core. If you had a different history, would you have a different sense of, I am? Got to look closely, because this is not about phenomena. This is about the inner sense of, I am. Yes, I'm sitting right here. If you had a different history, would you still be able to say, yes, I'm sitting right here? If you grew up on the moon, would you still be able to say, yes, I'm sitting right here? If you had a different name, could you still say, yes, I'm sitting right here? If you had different levels of possessions, you had more stuff or less stuff, could you still say, yes, I'm sitting right here? That Yes. That... Affirmation of isness is not dependent upon this, these phenomena. Look and see. This is not philosophy. This is about directly looking at <clears throat> the sense of I am. Now, if we're looking directly at the sense of I am, and we realize that it is not diminished when our stuff goes and not increased when we have more stuff. It's just a sense of I am. It's still there. Just I am. Well, is it damaged if someone insults us? Is it damaged if someone ignores us? Is it Weakened, if we label a set of symptoms tired. Look at that inner sense of I am. I am present right here. I am present right here, whether people ignore me, or whether I've been insulted, or whether I am tired, or whether I am healthy. I am present right here, right here. I am. Now, I am is a label. Just like your name. I am is a label. What is that label, I am, applied to? Actually, what is any label actually applied to? We label this a hand. What's it referring to? Is it referring to... All the various parts. Is it referring to the whole thing? Is it referring to the function of it? it Referring to the temporary age of it? What do these labels refer to? And we can break down anything a label is referring to, we can break it down into its constituent parts. All things are created from something else. The I am is a label applied to what? What if we said, I am not, I am not, is a label, does that change the sensation of isness at the core of our being? Does it matter what language we have around it? The core of our being, right here, right now, is not dependent upon language. Look and see, check and see if this is the case. So again, become aware of the sense of, I am sitting here. If We can't get that, recognize that inner sense, then this doesn't make any sense at all. But I am sitting here. I am present. Well now, let's look at what that I am owns. When we breathe in, we assume that we kind of own that the air that we just breathed in belongs to us. And as soon as we breathe it out, it's not. What makes things that we have a direct connection with, what makes us think they belong to me? They belong to the I am in there. They belong to this essence of who I really, truly am. If I like them, we tend to clutch at them, and they go, yes. If I don't like them, we tend to, say, get lost. Who do these clothes belong to? We all can assert that we are clothed, but who do they belong to? Where is the I am that they belong to? Does the I am look better with certain kind of clothing and look worse with another kind of clothing? I am is also a thought, a thought without a thought. If you're not thinking, if you're not labeling, what is the experience? What happens to this sense of self, of I am? We can't talk about it because it uses words, but you can practice and say, okay, totally silent, what happens to I am? Or we recognize that we are not any of the labels, we're just labels. Well, what happens to the I am? We look carefully underneath thought is sort of a, a natural glow of isness. Always present, unfindable. So we say, anicca, no self, but we have this vivid, direct experience, but if we look carefully at it, we see this vivid, direct experience is not, does not require all the bits that we normally think it does. This vivid direct experience, you know, name might be useful, might not be useful. There's no right or wrong name, just happens to be whatever name we have. This inner sense of I am this is not dependent upon the body. Confirm it, look for yourself and see. Imagine, you know things disappearing. What's left? Imagine accruing things. What happens? Now, this... So, this is what the Dharma is always talking about with anicca. No self. No thing is this living essence. No thing. And yet, there's the living essence. Be curious about living, too. The test of whether we understand this or not is what happens, how do we act? We can easily kind of make a Intellectual understanding, and write a little book about it. Write a pamphlet on, you know, the truth of no self, and you know. But the test of whether it is our direct experience is, well, how generous are we? Because we can give lots of things away, be untouched at our core. So generosity is not a matter of becoming diminished. How do we react when we're insulted, ignored, misunderstood? All those temporary conditions that inevitably, indubitably come to Human life. What is it that's misunderstood? What is it that's hurt? We look and we see this core of who we are is undisturbed, unaffected. Rinzai, the, the, the Master Linji, founder of the Rinzai school in what, 8th century China? I don't know. He said, you can spit at me. You can curse at me. And if that's not enough, get a bucket of water and, you know, spit, get a bucket of slops and throw it at me. It's all okay. You can't Touch me, the living essence. When we have this living essence becomes glommed on to something, and we think, oh, you know, <clears throat> that is the living essence of me, my dog. That is the living essence of me, my reputation. That is the living essence of me, the eight worldly wins. pleasure and pain, loss and gain, so on so. When we become glommed onto and we begin to misconstrue this essential isness, this essential life, and we misconstrue it and think that it really is dependent upon our pants, our views, our opinions. And then somebody comes along and says something opposite or dismisses our opinion or says that our shoes are ugly or whatever. When we have glommed onto and identified with that and lost track of our essential nature, then there's all kinds of perturbations, all kinds of reactivity, all kinds of, of, of gnashing and chomping and fighting because we've gotten enmeshed, confused. If we have gotten confused and we've lost track of this essential isness, this essential life, and the way we're looking—I'm looking at it right now—is we're talking about it, as though it's some, some thing inside, which is not true. But nonetheless, there's this essential, essential isness, essential life, essential quivering aliveness that is at the core of each person. If we have lost track of that, and we have turned ourselves away from it, and we are no longer in touch with what is always present. And then we begin glomming onto all the things that people glom onto. In our life, we're constantly subject to being broken and hurt and misunderstood, because we have misunderstood who we are. So this investigation, starting with the direct experience, the vivid experience of I am right here, and then investigating I am right here, until we See that I am right here. I am that core thing is not dependent. So Bodhidharma says don't requite anger. Suffer injustice. But if things, adverse things come to us and we realize the, our true nature, then we have a very different reaction to them. So always asking, what is true? Who is the one who is aware? Is it true that I was da 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 Is it true that that's who I am? Is it true that this Now, if we have a glimmer of this, we also have to ask, well is this apply? Is this the way things are with other people too? The other peoples are just bundles of reactivity and karma. They have lost, lost sight of their true nature. One of the signs of losing track of this true nature is all of our bumbling, fighting, unskillfulness and all of other people's bumbling, fighting, unskillfulness. Because we have glommed on to the wrong. We've glommed on to things and we have identified with them and we think, oh, that's me. And then we define and defend and protect. And we've lost track of that which is whole and complete lacking nothing right at the core. And if we are not so invested in the the stuff that we pad the sense of I am with, we have the ability to respond much more creatively, much more dynamically with the world. And how? Well, you know best. You know what you need to do. Let's look at this a little bit more. So, Bodhidharma, again, this text. When those who search for the path encounter adversity, they should think to themselves, in countless ages gone by, I've turned from the essential to the trivial and wandered through all manner of ignorance, all manner of existence often angry without cause and guilty of numberless transactions. Now, though I do no wrong, I am punished by my past. Neither gods nor men can foresee when an evil deed will bear its fruit. I accept it with an open heart and without a complaint of injustice. The sutras say, when you meet with adversity, don't be upset because it makes sense. With such understanding, you're in harmony with reason by suffering injustice you enter the path. On the surface, this is just the ordinary view, the ordinary confused view of karma. The ordinary confused view of karma, the law of cause and effect, is that when we do something unskillful, it has effects, known or unknown. And the superficial understanding is when I did something bad in the past, unskillful in the past. Sooner or later, I'll pay for it. And when bad things happen to me, that's that payment back with compounded interest. And from this superficial, incorrect perspective of karma, I deserve whatever happens to me. Other people deserve whatever happens to them. It's a very superficial view. And its misinterpretation, I think, causes all kinds of confusion and doubt. So without going too far into it, let's just look at adversity, difficulties, obstacles, challenges. And there are lots of them in the world, lots of them in our lives. But let's look at them through the lens of karma, cause and effect. Let's look at them a little more carefully. Now, without this particular analysis I'm going to go through, just being with patient endurance and acceptance will stop wars. And that acceptance is the foundation of love and kindness. And that acceptance doesn't mean we agree with things. We don't even agree with our own views because they're going to change all the time. But again, that's a a kind of superficial view of adversity. If we want to construct a tunnel, we instantly run into opposition. We instantly run into averse Difficult, challenging situations. And at the very least, the rock in front of us. And sometimes if we want to, to construct a tunnel for our benefit or for the benefit of others, we, we, we have these obstacles. And actually... Often, what seems like the apparent obstacle on the surface is not the real obstacle. The real obstacle is usually deeper in our hearts. So, we have, in overcoming, in meeting the obstacle of the rock in front of us, in meeting that obstacle, that's exactly how the tunnel is created. And in meeting each obstacle, we learn something very deep and fundamental about creating tunnels. We learn something very deep about ourselves. It is the meeting, the resolving, the connecting is how we gain wisdom, how we grow up. The adversity itself if we meet it is a gift. If we want to construct a tunnel the tunnel itself the energy, the effort, the mind that is required to grow the tunnel grows us. We have convert, transform adversity into wisdom. It's like trying to learn mathematics without ever solving any mathematical problems. It's kind of hopeless. But it's only through the constant solving of mathematical problems do we actually learn math. The same is true whenever we make a vow. We, every day here, recite the four Bodhisattva vows. I vow to free all beings. I vow to look into all delusion. I vow to learn everything I can learn. I vow to embody embody a healthy, wholesome mind. And so, whenever we make a vow, whenever we say, I'm going to make a tunnel, whenever we say I'm going to walk the spiritual path, I'm going to help all beings, right there we have created all kinds of obstacles, all kinds of challenges, all kinds of things are in the way. And the meeting of those, the meeting of those challenges, the meeting of those obstacles, coming right up close to them and working with them, is exactly how we grow. Exactly how we find wisdom. And incidentally, we might actually be of help to other people. Incidentally, the tunnel that we grew might actually serve many people. So with adversity, the way Rinzai, the way I'm suggesting we consider it here, that adversity is important. Adversity is not wrong and not a punishment, unless we decide to label it like that. And again, looking at that text, because something is hard and difficult, even painful, does that mean it doesn't serve a function? Does that mean that because I don't like it, because it's painful, I want to get rid of it, and in getting rid of it, there will be some benefit. If, when we encounter adversity, it's important when we encounter adversity, we meet it. When we encounter adversity, we don't run from it, whether it be an internal or an external adversity. And Third, when we encounter adversity, trying to stay with this text, it's important that we also do the same analysis that we did of the body-mind at the beginning. We break it up. We break it up into its component parts. Everything has component parts. Pain, if you feel afflicted with a lot of pain. It has many elements. It requires a body, it requires a nervous system, it requires muscles, it requires a view, it requires an observer, it requires some feeling, it requires a history, it requires standards, it needs space, it needs time. And when we break things that we regard as aversive, as obstacles down in this way, and find that maybe they're a little more ephemeral than we thought. It doesn't make the sensation go away. It doesn't make the problem go away, but it reframes our view, just like seeing our true nature reframes our view, our relationship to things. Instead of them being who we think we are, and then fighting and defending them, we have a new, lighter relationship to things. And the same thing is true with adversity. It doesn't make a problem go away, but somehow that problem is transformed into wisdom. And when we have made a vow, are meeting the obstacles, and there are often endless obstacles, And our job is to convert them into wisdom by seeing their truth, seeing the reality that's at the core of them. Then, what this text says, the sutras say, when you meet with adversity, don't be upset because it makes sense. With such understanding, you're in harmony with reason and enter the path. So, every... Text, especially a text like this, can be opened up and looked at and made personal. And don't just take it as a superficial, the first reading. Just like with our lives, don't take our lives as superficial. Don't take the first reading that we have been indoctrinated by through our culture and, and information operating system as who we are, look directly at this living essence. So close. So close we can't see it. So profound we don't recognize it. So vast we can't find an end to it. Please, may you Carry this investigation not with your mind that can just point you, but with your direct experience of the heart. See what happens.